Please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Psalm 15. Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall dwell, sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. It's God's word for his people today. You may be seated. And let's pray once again and ask for God's help. Father, we pray that you would show us glorious things in your word. You'd give us eyes to see your glory, hearts that feel the weight of it, feet that would then follow your word to life in Christ, we pray. Amen. Last year, a late-night talk show host received a lifetime ban from his regular restaurant in New York City. The owner alleged horrible behavior and treatment of the employees had led to that ban. And other than, than, other than the initial embarrassment and exclusion from the place you love, obviously increased because of this person's visibility, uh, getting banned from one restaurant in a city with 25,000 of them doesn't really mean a whole lot. I mean, just make another one your favorite. But imagine getting banned from the place you were made for. Like the only place in the universe that matters because it's the place you were designed for. So you've been banned from an irreplaceable spot because it is actually life itself. You can't go make something else your favorite because there is no other place in all the universe like it. And when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, that's where mankind found itself, banned from God's presence because of sin. But unlike the New York City restaurant, our ban also came with God's promise to send a son who would one day crush the devil, sin, and death in order to bring his people back into his presence once again. And as the Old Testament unfolds, God begins to make good on this promise to bring sinners back into the place for which he made us. And Psalm 15 shows us four ways that happens. First with the ultimate question, then the clarifying answer, the certain promise, and the great dilemma. The ultimate question, the clarifying answer, the certain promise, and the great dilemma. So first, the ultimate question. Look at verse 1 with me. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? who shall dwell on your holy hill. You know, life is filled with questions. We ask questions daily, and we are asked questions daily. But verse 1 is the most important question we can ask. 
who can dwell with God. If living with God for his glory is the reason we were created, yet our sin led to our ban from God's presence, then the only question that matters is, who can dwell with God? The driving question of our lives becomes, how can we get back? And this is a question that drives the world and everyone in it, Christian or non-Christian. Everyone woke up this morning asking this question. They might not have asked it in this way. They, they might not know the God of the Bible. But they woke up seek, saying, how can I get security, joy, meaning, identity? Everyone is on the search for the answer to this question. And this ultimate question leads us to God's grace. That it's even possible to get back into God's presence is all of grace. I mean, God told Adam and Eve in the day they sinned, they would what? Surely die. Sin deserves an eternal ban from God's presence. But God showed mercy and grace in the midst of judgment. Instead of hearing, never again shall you dwell with me, we heard a promise that God would make a way. And God began to make a way for us to dwell with him once again. And that's what Psalm 15 verse 1 points to with the words tent and holy hill. The word tent is an exodus word. It points to the tabernacle in the wilderness. And when they set it up, God's presence filled it and Israel encamped all around it. It's a, it's a new picture of Eden. Like Eden was oriented around life with God, after God redeemed Israel from Egypt, he again oriented life around him, around dwelling with him. As his tent was set up in the middle, and his glory presence filled it, and Israel encamped around God's presence. And what this shows us is something truly glorious, that God is doggedly determined to dwell with his people. I mean, think about it. The God of the universe was making a way for us to get back into his presence, to fill a tiny tent in some wilderness you and I would never visit. It's on no one's Yelp list. Right? It's not on TripAdvisor. Actually, TripAdvisor would tell you to avoid this place. There's nothing there. And yet God, in his glory, wants to spend days and nights with his people there? He is doggedly determined to dwell with his people. Our great enemy and sin are no match for God's desire to have a people dwelling with him now and forever. Friends, God will not let us go. But there's still an obstacle to our getting back into God's presence, as we see in the other Exodus word, holy hill. When God established his covenant with Israel in Exodus 24, he did so on Mount Sinai, and we are told his glory settled on it, and his holy presence on that hill, which later then becomes synonymous with Mount Zion in Jerusalem, his presence filling this hill, is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. So yes, God has this dogged determination to dwell with his people, but his 
presence is like a consuming fire to anything that is unholy. A holy God and sinners don't mix. That's what we see a few psalms earlier in Psalm 5. Verse 4, it says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So the ultimate question is, who can dwell with God? And we were made for that place. And we see God is doggedly determined to dwell with his people. And yet evil cannot dwell with him. In fact, if evil comes into his presence, it will be consumed. Sinners deserve to come under the consuming fire of God's holy judgment. We don't, we don't deserve to come under his hospitality as a guest in his presence. The one place we were made for is now the one place that would surely consume us instantaneously. Only holy people can safely enter God's presence and dwell with him. And that's what we hear secondly in the clarifying answer. The clarifying answer. Verses 2 to 5 clearly show who can dwell with God. And it, the answer comes in four areas. Character, speech, affections, and actions. So the clarifying answer, four areas. Character, speech, affections, and actions. First character, look at verse 2. Who can dwell with God? Well, he who walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks truth in his heart. Seems pretty simple. But, but think about this with me for a minute. How do you think an Old Testament saint would begin to answer our ultimate question? You, you have the cheat sheet in front of you, but just try and say, if I called you up yesterday and say, hey, I'm working on my sermon, um, I'm trying to talk about how people get back into God's presence. How would an Old Testament saint know how to get back into God's presence? I think most people, the first answer on their lips would be, you, you offer a sacrifice. But David doesn't begin with sacrifices, does he? In fact, sacrifices aren't mentioned at all in Psalm 15. Rather than performing religious rituals to get back into God's presence, the answer begins by clarifying the character of those who can dwell with God, beginning first with walking blamelessly. Now, blameless is not sinless in the way you and I normally hear blameless, like we did nothing wrong. Blameless actually comes from the word for wholeness. It's complete. It's, it's a united heart that loves God supremely. We're not divided in our allegiances. We are completely, wholly, fully united in love for God. And this heart that is loyal to God, we don't have divided loyalties, they are complete and whole, leads to doing what is right. Those who are committed to God in their heart, their lives will reflect that. Their lives will align with his will and his ways. And unless we begin to think this is a legalistic spotlight beginning to shine on us, verse 2 concludes with speaking truth in our hearts. Speaking truth in our hearts. The phrase there means trustworthy. You're a trustworthy person. In other words, what, what this kind of person says and then does always aligns. Your public life and your private life are not divided. You're wholehearted. You are complete. And so what you always do aligns with what you always say. And what you say always aligns with what you do. There's no division between who you are on the inside and what people see on the outside. 
There's no show. If, if you were on reality TV, what people would see in this room on a Sunday morning is what they would see on a Thursday night when you think no one's watching. Those are the people who can dwell with God, whose hearts are so completely whole and wholly committed to God, their lives on the outside match what God sees on the inside. Secondly, then, speech. Who can dwell with God? Look at verse 3. He who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Again, pretty simple. The first and last clauses specifically deal with our words. And so it's probably safe to assume that the emphasis of the broader middle clause is also our words. We do no evil with our words to our neighbors. The person who can dwell with God is a person whose speech is always loving and pure. They don't slander others, Psalm 15 specifically points out. We slander when we share something about someone else to another person that's not true, or it's only partially true, that then damages their reputation. It causes others to look down upon them. This can happen loudly in public. You can bash someone for lots of people to hear. It can happen over a quiet cup of coffee, just sharing some prayer requests. It can happen with a few strokes on a keyboard with you not saying anything at all. It can happen when you wonder aloud the passive-aggressive slander, when you just kind of say, oh, maybe this or that, or I, I'm not so sure. You bring out this kind of questioning that then makes someone else look at someone else in, with a diminished view. A slander is sharing untruths or hearsay that diminishes and damages a person in the eyes of others. And, and God hates slander. He hates slander. When God saves sinners, he unites those sinners in Jesus to each other. So people who have no business coming together, who would have lots of things to share about each other and say about each other and not like each other enough to, to actually damage each other in other people's views, those people all of a sudden are deeply united to each other in Jesus. That the things that kept them apart have now been overcome by the blood of Jesus. And God commands us to maintain the unity that Jesus' blood bought. And so slander is taken up here because it's one of the worst things the church can do to one another. It's sinful evil because it destroys what God desires and has actually accomplished for his people. And that's why James 3 says slander is demonic. When you slander someone, when you listen to slander and don't confront it, when this is happening in the church, it's demonic because you're not being led by the Holy Spirit. You're actually acting like the devil because it's actually an act that undoes and rebels against what God desires and has accomplished for his people in Jesus. So it's no surprise that slanderers can't dwell with God. They have Satan-like qualities of being an accuser and liars. So those who slander can't dwell with God. 
Neither can those who take up a reproach against his friend. Now, this word friend makes it seem like it's more close. It is a closer ring of social relationship. But the word friend here is often translated in the Old Testament as simply neighbor, which means it's not just your friends. You know, you can slander, you can't slander your friends, but you can go slander anyone else, you know, or you can do no evil to those people you really like, but hey, everyone else is fair game. It's, it's anyone. The word friend is a neighbor. And so those people uh, who derisively mock and ridicule anyone take up a reproach against a friend. And we saw this in Goliath uh, in 1 Samuel 17 when he mocked God and ridiculed Israel. He was, Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 took up a reproach against God and his people. Uh, you take up a reproach when someone's condition like something about them, or their circumstances, something that's going on in their lives, leads you to deride or mock them, causing further injury. You're adding uh, injury to insult, so to speak. You take up a reproach rather than bearing the burden with that person or encouraging them in it. And the middle clause there, does no evil to his neighbor, sums up this verse. The, the one who can dwell with God never wrongs another person, especially with their words. Pure and loving speech is what it takes to dwell on God's presence. Because our words matter. We live in a world where we're surrounded by it. We even, you, in, in this day, you've encountered more words than people living 100 years ago ever did. And so it makes us seem like words aren't really that important. But our words matter. The words you think, because God can see on the inside, even if those around you cannot. The words you say and the words you type matter. Every word matters to God. Listen to Ephesians 4 9. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But what? Only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So the occasion might need a strong word, a confronting word, a rebuking word. The New Testament has lots of ways for that. But it still should be in the sense of it's supposed to give grace to anyone who hears it, to build up, not to break down. When we speak to someone or about someone, our words then must be a vehicle of grace, not weapons of destruction. It should build up, not break down. The person who can dwell with God uses each and every word they think and say and type for the good of others. Because those who don't speak this way show the true state of their heart. The words you release from you, in whatever manner they're released, are actually a reflection of what God sees on the inside. After saying something hurtful or vulgar, uh, have you ever said or heard someone say, that's not me. <sighs> I can't believe that came out of my mouth. Well, Jesus says, actually, it is you. <laughs> Jesus says the complete opposite of that's not me. Listen to Matthew 12. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every 
careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. See how this ties to Psalm 15? If your words are always loving and pure and gracious and holy, you'll be justified by them. You can get into God's presence. But every careless word is a moment of condemnation. What you say reveals the true you. And so a few bad words or a temporary state of lost control is not actually what bans you from God's presence. It's the evidence of why you're banned from God's presence. It's your words reveal the true state of your heart. So if any word you've ever spoken doesn't align with the holiness of God, you can't dwell with God because evil may not dwell in his presence. Psalm 15's clarifying answer then continues to go after our heart. Character, speech, and then thirdly, affections. Look at verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now, in wrestling through this portion of Psalm 15, it, it does seem uh, eerily similar to the charges Christians often hear today of, of bigotry and hatred. We hate people. You got to despise them. You look down upon them. But the focus is actually less on other people and more about what we love. It's about what causes us to rejoice. Uh, if a holy God takes no pleasure in sin, well, then neither will his people. We'll, act, we'll, we'll recoil from sin. We'll, we'll hate it. And we, it says, the person who does it. We will hate sin in this world and those who are carrying it out. It's not enough to avoid sin. Those who dwell with God will despise it and the people who live in it and carry out sin in this world. That sounds completely opposite of the biblical command to love our enemy. But despising and loving actually are not, aren't at odds. Now look at verse 4. What's the opposite of despise in Psalm 15, verse 4? It's honor. To honor is to praise or give respect, to defer to, to point to and say, that's the way. So, here, it means to call evil, evil, and good, good, and never do the opposite. Those who dwell with God never praise those who sin, nor the vile acts they commit. They don't rationalize it. They don't get excuses to it. They don't defend it. And that's actually the most loving thing we can do for those who are running headlong away from God's presence and towards eternal separation from it. Now, that's not to say that you can't despise a person sinfully. You can you can despise sinfully. We do this when God's glory and his honor aren't the primary reason we start to call out people. Do, do you see what I'm saying? If you have a pure motivated heart, then you can despise those who do evil and their vile deeds without it being sinful because your supreme ambition in the moment is God's honor and glory. We often despise sinfully, and we do so most frequently by comparing ourselves to each other. So we actually sinfully despise when we compare ourselves to one another. We have lots of grace for our own sin. 
We don't despise our own sin as much as we despise other people's sin. We got lots of room for when we, when we sin, and, but we're very quick to call out others. So we despise them in relation to our lives or our views or our desires. And when we do that, we make ourselves the center of things rather than God and his glory. When we do this, we don't despise, we actually denounce. We're making judgments. We're passing judgment on someone else according to our standard, not God's. We're making judgments upon them while setting us apart as holy according to our own standard, not God's. So don't mistake denouncing for despising. Those who dwell with God despise evil. They call evil evil. We revolt at it. Our hearts don't love it. We recoil from it. And the way then to not make the mistake of denouncing for despising is, is found in verse 4. What makes you rejoice? What brings praise and honor and respect to your lips? What brings you joy? What, what do you love, in other words? Those who dwell with God hate sin and love God's holiness and righteousness. When they look at people and the world around us, they're like, to evil, and they embrace what is good. It, it, something deep within them wells up with praise when it sees holiness and righteousness and peace and justice. And something within us revolts and, and causes us to call out evil when we see it. It's, it's when your love for God hasn't been numbed by sin. We're too easily numbed by sin. It, sin is too normal in our, word, in our world. And we forget that sin is actually cancer spreading, bringing us down to eternal separation from God. And so, despising is just part of our heart affection that Psalm 15 is pointing at. You must do more than just despise a vile person. This is also making a mistake that I think is prevalent in our, not, excuse me, not our church, the church today. That, that was a lot more harsh than I meant it to sound, so just, we're going to edit that right out of that. I was not guilt-tripping you all this morning. In the Western church today, I think we have an inordinate desire to despise vile people and the vileness they, they commit. I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm saying we inordinately do it. We're only doing half of verse 4 because what's the other side? This is when despising becomes denouncing, when you forget the second half of verse 4. You must also honor those who fear the Lord. It, it, it is saying no to sin and yes to God. Despising a vile person isn't enough to dwell with God. We must also praise God and those who live in complete allegiance to him, whose fear of the Lord, their, their in aweness of God, leads them to live lives of righteousness and holiness. We must also praise God and those who live that way. And we do that when our heart's affections are so captured by God that we recoil at evil and love what is good. And our affections for God then drive not only our words, 
what we call out and what we praise, but also, fourthly, our actions, our actions. Look at verse 4, the end of verse 4 to the beginning of verse 5. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So our actions now get put in the crosshairs. Psalm 15's primary focus is the kind of person who can dwell with God. Again, remember, there's not a lot of religious rituals here to get back into God's presence. It's all about the kind of character and person we are, which then, of course, cannot be separated from what we do. It's more about being than it is about doing, but we cannot separate who we are from what we do. Who we are drives what we do, and what we do reveals who we really are. And Psalm 15 tells us that we can tell a lot about a person from their relationship with money. If God is the sole affection of those who dwell with him, he is their complete love. He has captured their heart. Well, then when they commit to something, they will do it. Even if the circumstances change, and it's going to cost them cash or comfort, or convenience, they will still keep their promise. Because cash, comfort, and convenience aren't their motivation. It's not what's captured their heart. God is their treasure, which means keeping their word is beyond value to this person. And do you know why? Why is keeping your word beyond value? of even the greatest amount of money in the world. Because God never backs out of a promise. If, well, in fact, God has never broken a promise. And we see that he has never done so even to his own hurt. He sent his son, Jesus, to live the life we did not, to die the death we deserved, to bring us back into life with him. And he swore this promise beginning in Genesis 3 that he would do so to his own hurt. And so when you back out of a commitment because of cash, comfort, or convenience, Psalm 15 is really saying it's, it's less about the commitment you're breaking. It's that the commitment you're breaking lies about the character of God. If you say, I'm God's people, and yet you go around breaking your promises when it's just not convenient for you anymore. Well, you lie about the character of God. He never breaks his promises. In fact, God is the God who lavishly, uh, lavishes generosity and grace upon those who don't deserve it. When their circumstances don't deserve it, when it's difficult, when it's going to be very costly, God lavished generosity and grace upon us. So for those who will dwell with God, the, their first instinct will be to also lavish grace and generosity upon others, just like God does upon us. So we will never say at someone's situation, I'll help out, but what's in it for me? Now, we're good Christian people, so we would never be that blunt about it. <laughs> But you'll say it in your heart. And this gets back to the early. What we see and are on the inside 
comes out on the outside when on the outside is actually on the inside. We will never act with self-interest because self-interest has no place in God's presence. I mean, in the presence of this majestic God, how could you have an ounce of self-interest? Maybe you've never lent out your money to a person in need at interest. Maybe you've never taken a bribe to pervert justice. But again, Psalm 15 is giving us principles here. It's not about checking off a few boxes. Okay, I've never done this, never done this. Boom. Give me the ticket into God's presence. Psalm 15 is driving us to ask ourselves, who owns our hearts? Who sits on the throne of our hearts? Who is the sole affection of our hearts? People whose God is themselves look out for themselves. (laughs) They act in self-interest. They will do things to other people to get ahead. They will use others to serve themselves. Which again, is so completely opposite of the character of the God of the Bible. He did not use us to further his interests. He loved and served at great cost, the cost of his son, to serve us. And so those who dwell in his his presence will love and serve others as we have first been loved and served. And that's the clarifying answer. Those with godlike character, speech, affection, and actions are allowed back into God's presence. And not only that, you can cling thirdly to the certain promise. Look at verse 5b, the end of verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. The phrase does these things means continually. It's not just once. It's like, you know, you want to go see a movie, you buy the ticket, you enter into the theater, and then you're gone. The theater ends. You can't just sit there. You've got to keep buying tickets. That's the thought here. The, the word does these things. You have to continually act in godlike holiness in all areas of life to continue to dwell with God. It's not just once. There's no vacations or breaks. Those whose heart and life continually reflect Psalm 15 have the certain promise they will never be moved. You'll never be moved because you're going to be in the presence of the immovable God. And that's actually why you can love and serve others as Psalm 15 shows. Because your hope and security isn't what others think of you. It's not your standing. It's not your status. Your your money is not your security. And neither is anything else this world has to offer. Your hope is God. Your praise is God. Your love is God. And that drives everything about who you are and what you do. And with God, you'll never be shaken no matter what comes your way because he cannot be shaken. You're in his presence. God's presence, again, as we saw at the beginning, is the safest, pleasure-filled place in the universe that you were created for. And when you're in that place, nothing can take you out of it. But that leads us to, finally, Psalm 15's great dilemma. Maybe you've been feeling it already. If these are the people for whom the ban from God's presence is lifted, well, well, then no one can dwell with God. No one has done these things to the degree and depth God demands. 
Now, you're not going to be on the tabloids or, you know, across the ticker of your favorite news channel and says, so-and-so got banned forever and get the initial embarrassment. But it is like being banned from the place we love. And you have to walk past it every day. And you see everyone on the inside having the time of their lives. And you remember what it was once like. But there's no way back in. And like children pressing their windows on the, or on, on the glass of the window, you want to get back in, but you have no way of ever doing so. Well, that's what Psalm 15 says of us. We see God's tent from afar. His holy hill in the distance. And there's no way to get back to the only place in the universe that matters. And if that's the message of Psalm 15, then it would be a cruel psalm from a God taunting us with the greatest good you could ever imagine, yet it's always just out of reach. And the truth is, friends, our sin excludes us all from God's presence. Psalm 15 declares you can't get back into the only place that matters. But the message of Psalm 15 is also that God doesn't expect you to. Because this psalm actually isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And we know this because verse 1 doesn't point to you. But to the king of Psalm 2 to the king of the scriptures, to the promise God made way back in the beginning in Genesis 3. Listen to Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who can get on God's hill? The king God set there. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. The people who can dwell with God, I will give them to you. How? Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In the king that can dwell in God's tent. In the king who has been set upon God's holy hill. You know, the bad news of Psalm 15 is you can't lift your band from God's presence. But friends, the glorious good news is that God never expected you to. He knew sinners could never enter. He knew even if it was possible for you to do this one day, you could never do it continually. He knew sinners could never enter his dwell or dwell on his holy hill. In fact, if you get close, just like the Israelites at the side of Mount Zion, if you touch the holy hill, death. But God sent his son Jesus, fully God and fully man, to live the perfectly righteous life it takes to live in God's presence. And because Jesus never sinned, he was the perfect sacrifice for sinners and substituted himself in our place. He took the ban we deserved on the cross, dying the death we deserved, so that all those with faith in Jesus would be welcomed back in and never know the ban of God's presence. And so friends, you don't enter God's presence based on the merits of your life. Psalm 15 is not a checklist to start working hard at to say, okay, got my marching orders, here we go. What that will do is just prove that your life merits an eternal ban from God's presence. That's all you can earn. You can only enter by taking refuge in the king God set on his holy hill. 
And by faith alone in Jesus alone, God unites you to Jesus so that what is true of Jesus becomes true of you. And I once was a slanderer. I once was a rebel. I once did evil to my neighbor. I love to use other people to further my own interests. That's what's true of me, but what? By faith now in Jesus, the holy king, who perfectly lived, aligned heart and life to God and his will and his ways, his perfect record becomes my perfect record. So I can enter God's tent forever. And the joy of my master I was created for is mine once again. So repent and believe. Repent and believe by faith in Jesus. And you will find welcome in the only place in all the universe that matters. And brothers and sisters, what gratitude fills our hearts when we see what Jesus did to bring us back into God's presence. He too climbed a hill, Calvary, so that we would never be banned from the hill of God's presence, but through his life, death, and resurrection could walk up the hill of God's holiness and not be consumed by the judgment our sin deserves but be covered by Jesus' blood and welcomed into the tent of God forever. Now listen to how Hebrews 9 talks about what Jesus did. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. Where did Jesus enter? Into heaven itself, into the presence of God, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus did it on our behalf. He cleanses his people from all unholiness. And unlike Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus' cleansing work goes all the way down. It cleanses us on the inside. What God now sees inside is what true of Jesus' perfection. He unites us to Jesus all the way down. And because our great high priest entered the heavenly places on our behalf, we now have the certain hope that those who take refuge in him will never be moved in this life. You'll never be moved in this life. And here's something glorious, brothers and sisters. You don't have to look for this hill or this tent. I, I hate camping. I don't know about you. You're weird if you do. That's just, I mean, I want a hotel with a nice, comfy bed. I don't like camping. And so if I had to go look for a hill to camp on, I'd be like, nah, I'm not sure if this is like the greatest news in the universe. <laughs> but, but these are just pictures. Listen to what Ephesians 2 now tells us. That this is not about going on a camping trip. Listen to Ephesians 2. In him, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's not about us now because of Jesus trying to go find God's presence. You don't go somewhere now to find God's presence. In Christ, by the Spirit, you, you are God's dwelling place. That's, this is life-changing. God has come to us in Christ. He does not demand that you go and do something for him to come into his presence. He rips into the darkness of death in your life and pulls you to himself, and you become his dwelling place. If you thought it was weird that God wanted to camp out in the middle of a wilderness, I mean, how glorious is it that the God of the universe makes his dwelling place with us by his Spirit? And the church is now God's dwelling place on earth. And if God is with us, then 
There can be no one that stands against us. You are immovable. And it gets even better. Let me preach for a minute. It gets even better. There's coming a day when God's dwelling place won't just be within us in a spiritual sense that we, that we believe by faith, yet we can't see with our eyes. It won't just be within us, but it'll be all around us. Listen to Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, start walking up here. No, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself God himself will be with them as their God. That is the certain hope you have. Now you are God's dwelling place, being built together as his temple, his dwelling place on earth. But there's coming a day when you will see God face to face if Jesus Christ is your king and savior. Never to be taken out of that city again. He will be with, him, he will be with us himself as our God. That is the great hope we have, brothers and sisters. For the Lamb has redeemed us from our eternal ban our sin deserves. He has also written us into his book of life, Revelation 21 later says. And you know what? If the Lamb wrote you in his book of life, your name could never be edited out. And that is the glorious hope Psalm 15 sends us out with. This is not our holiness, but we live in the holiness Jesus won for us. So go out living for the glory of his name and all you say and do, and go out rejoicing that in Christ, the immovable presence of God is with you right now, even where you sit. And one day, it will be ours fully. What we behold by faith will be our sight. And we're sojourning now together towards that day when we will dwell by the light of God's glorious face forever. Let's pray. So, Father, we are amazed at your grace to us. We work so hard to work ourselves out of your presence, and you are doggedly determined to keep us with you. You hold us by your hand. You will not let us go. Our sin is no match for your grace. It overcomes it and changes us and conforms us into the image of our holy King Jesus. And so I pray now that we would go out with the certain hope that you are with us and in us, working through us for the glory of your name. And I pray that you would also send us out with the great hope of the message of the gospel. And the great hope that one day, what we all long for and everyone else around us wants and is working for, will be ours. And we will dwell with you and gaze upon your beauty and live in the light of your holiness forever. And so until that day, pray you would continue to keep us steadfast in faith in Jesus, that we would work out our faith and love towards one another and our neighbors so that Christ would be glorified in all we say and do forever and ever. Amen.